Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Pedagogy Matters podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to the fore some core topics of conversation in relation to learning and teaching, to discuss, to break down aspects of practice and provide snippets, advice and guidance as to how to integrate these into your daily practice. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ollie Carve, former head teacher, author of a number of books on visual teaching strategies, including dual coding with teachers. And Ollie is currently working with Tom Sharrington to produce the walkthroughs which are visual guides to support instructional coaching. Ollie, good morning, how are you? Hi, nice to be here. No, thank you for joining us, you know, really delighted to have you here. You know, I've been a big follower of your work in my previous job and yeah, it's really, really interesting, really insightful. Um, so today we're gonna to be talking on dual coding, you know, dual coding for teachers, but also how we can transfer that more broadly. So I think what would be useful to start with is, are you okay, there's a bit of a breakdown as to what is meant by dual coding? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, about four years ago, I. Uh... I worked with two cognitive science professors in America and I illustrated their book and they had the six most effective teaching and learning strategies. And one of them was under the term dual coding. So that's been around, actually it's been around since the 1970s. It's a very technical term you might pick up in a psychology book. But so what, is it, what does it mean? In all, okay, what are the, the core principles would you say? Yeah, well, before I do that, it's it's you'd know it as visual teaching strategies. Ah, oh, that's what it is. So in a sense, all of those visual teaching strategies that you all know about, in a way, they've been rebranded. So let me tell you um, why it's quite important. Because before, people instinctively thought, well, obviously, all human beings pretty much learn better when you show them as well as just tell them, you know. It's, it's kind of intuitive, and you've learned that ever since you've been on the planet. Um, but dual coding gives it a lot of research. So a Canadian psychologist called Alan Pivio, he, he created this theory. And it was, you know, 1970, 71. And he only died last year. And all those intervening years, it's all about over 40 years, 50 years, he spent researching this one theory. So, and in the latter decades, that included not just psychological testing, but also um, neuroscience. So they checked out what the brain does. So it pretty much is probably the most robust theory we've got in education. And here's what it says, that we take in information with all our senses. You know, we smell, we, we taste, we do everything. But the two major ones are what we hear and what we see and the thing is and it's, it's we may not have realized this they come in two different channels right okay so so what do you mean by the two different channels well um what it means is that well let me say a bit more and then see make it clear yeah, of course they're processed differently so and they process separately and here's the important thing to make learning easier so we take in visual information and you know our working memory is really really tiny and there's nothing we can do about it yeah. you can go on a you can go on a ten thousand pound brain training course in california and they kind of they sell that sort of stuff and it doesn't make any difference so the biggest challenge in teaching is dealing with all the students working memory which is by definition is tiny so that kind of an another way to talk about working memory 
although I'm going to use a longer word, it simplifies it, is your consciousness or what you're aware of. So right now we're aware of now and then this bit and then this bit and all the other bits have disappeared. There's only so much you can be aware of. And it's down to almost a present moment or a few seconds worth. I think it's up to 15 seconds technically. And yep. then kind of you just can't hold on to it. So what we see, we can hold on for a very short period of time. And separately, what we hear, which are words, we hold on for uh, a short amount of time. And they are separate. Now, I often wondered why that was. And then I guess it was for survival. So that when it's dark, guess what? You can still hear. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. yeah. So they are separate. They're separate, but they can work together. And when they do work together, they join together to create like a unit, a bundle. So imagine you, you, you'd only just started um, learning French and I teach you the word for cat, le chat. So you would, you would be, you, I'd get to be familiar with the word le chat. Yeah. You would see it and you would also hear it. And I'd also show you a picture. And so all of a sudden now you've got this bundle of meaning. You've got the image and you've got the word. And so they get joined together. And the learning process, psychologists, it's as if they're trying to confuse us, which is weird. Um, they use the word encoding, encoding. It just means making sense of stuff as you learn. And so whereas before you might encode the word cat as a picture, as you've seen it, you learn it. And then later on, at some other time, you learn the spelling and the sound of the word cat. Or here, they come together in one bundle. So in a sense, the notion of cat in French has been encoded twice. The image has been encoded and the word's been encoded. So actually, that's why we get the word dual coding. No, that makes sense. So just, I guess just to summarise that, obviously, the principles look at taking information in, in two different ways, visual and audio, as you were saying there. Exactly. And I guess a different way of looking at it is it gives you two opportunities to retain this information or to, or to oh, remember oh, this information. The next stage. So here's oh, the next sorry. stage. Yeah. So if you imagine arrows going into your head, that's yep. like the learning bit. And then and then the going out bit, which is recall, remembering, retrieval, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Then the learning, the psychologists say it leaves a double memory trace. Right. Okay. And Professor Paul Kirshner, who, who who's a big shot, he's written an article which he calls dual coding, double-barreled learning. Forget the gun metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's double-barreled learning. Yeah. So when it comes to remembering, you actually get double the chance of remembering it because it could be triggered by the image, which helps trigger the word, or vice versa, or very probably both. So, as a major part of learning involves remembering because in offense there's no thinking there's there's nothing if we can't remember we're like goldfish yeah. so it's not the whole story but there's no other story unless it happens if we have a method that doubles its chance of success i mean the only question you can ask is who wouldn't ever use it yeah. well it all sounds too good to be true but yeah you're absolutely right in terms of there and I, I guess thinking back to my learning as a, as a as a younger person or even my teaching you know often we throw a lot of information at students you know I'm thinking back to the old powerpoint slides there's lots and lots of content you know but at times very little images 
and I guess what you're saying now makes total sense of look, consider how you can provide the content or the information as well as potential image. Is that what you're saying here in terms of how we should be doing this within practice? Yes, it is entirely. Although I have an overriding thing is that okay. anything good, if it's done all the time, gets boring and doesn't stand out. Yeah. So I often say if everything stands out, nothing stands out. So what is, so let me go to the extreme, which would be the overkill. Every single word and every single everything you do, there's an image by it. Then it kind of it loses its power. It's like wallpaper, yeah? So pick the things you really want to stand out, memorable, hook them, and then find some kind of image to go with it. I mean, I can talk about the types of images that are more successful. And later on, I'll talk, when we talk, later on, we'll talk about how to do it. You know, yeah. we can talk about photographs, black and white images, uh, video, which ones work best. But fundamentally, that's it. So the other thing we need to bear in mind, of course, is because we talked about our working memory is so tiny yeah. and limited, and we've we've got more power to the one item of catch because we got it in visual and verbal form, it leads us invariably onto the other major theory in education, which Dylan William, and he's, William Williams quite well known in FE, says is the single most important theory for teachers to know, which is cognitive load theory. That's more recent, yeah. 10 years, you know, in 1980, John Sweller. Um, really, it's a theory which is so practical that never goes away whenever you're teaching anybody one of the biggest considerations is how much do they already know because the risk of overloading someone and confusing them is most dangerous when the students are meeting something completely new yeah that's when you get overwhelmed interestingly yesterday i was reading a research paper about accountancy students and they had this research where they had to judge how quick the lecturer was talking. Yeah? Yeah, go on. Yeah. I'm curious. Of course, the faster it is, the more overwhelmed they are. Right, okay. And what they found was when they didn't know a lot about the subjects, it was unfamiliar, they, they didn't grasp the major concepts, it felt like the lecturer was speaking incredibly quickly. Yeah. When they were familiar with the major concepts and they were just dealing with the details, oh, all of a sudden, the lecturer is speaking and much slower. That's, In reality, That's a really interesting point. The speed yeah. was the same. The speed was the same. And the determining factor is how familiar are you with aspects of unfamiliar material? So cognitive load, in a way, is not relevant if you're dealing with stuff you already know. Because you've already put in essence mastered it so therefore you've got the foundation knowledge information so therefore the cognitive load is an issue yeah whereas you're saying if it's a new content you become overwhelmed with all the different bits of information i guess like learning to drive a car the first time you sit step foot in that car there's all the things that you have to do indicators mirrors gears and so on and so forth whereas actually when you've mastered that there's no cognitive load there with driving a car then you can have your music on then you can have different factors is that a is that a fair example that's a perfect example yeah exactly so Exactly so. So I guess, how does, so coming back to the dual coding side of things and the cognitive load, are we just saying there then that lecturers need to have an awareness of where learners are at at the stage of a module or a topic or, or content of learning 
and then consider that in relation to the amount of information they present and how they present it. Exactly that, exactly that. And it's, it's always a critical thing. You really need to know as best you can what students already know. Yeah. I mean, a definition of learning is, is you connect new material to what you already know. Yeah. And if the new material has absolutely no connection to what you already know, in theory, it's impossible to learn. Wow. So you have to really weedle out, even if it's quite a long way away and disconnected, some aspect that you can say. And when and of course, you don't need to be a teacher to know that. So, you know, people are always saying, oh, well, it's a bit like. <laughs> so in fact, many psychologists say learning is fundamentally about analogies. Yeah. What they mean by analogies is so when, you know the typical one electricity well you know how water and of course it's a dangerous one you don't want to mix electricity <laughs> you know the analogy only goes so far but it goes far enough to people get i've got it there's like there's something that travels within something and you can kind of stop it divert it yeah. maybe put more pressure less pressure and that's all they need to know and really when you really look at learning much of it and certainly the most effective one is based on this phenomenon that human beings know they don't have to go and get a degree in psychology to know that. It's analogy. So yeah. what you already know, and then kind of link it. No, and that's useful to, I guess, for you to reinforce, because through different episodes of this, this podcast, we've talked around, look, it's really important to start a lesson or start a module that you continuously check what learners know, what they understand, and building yeah. up their schemas. And I guess that's going to really be supported by what you've said here, because then to develop knowledge even further you build on their initial knowledge and if they haven't got the foundation blocks well then you've got to go back and relearn those and learn the basics before you move on yeah can i just say something there of in course. a sense i'm going off dual coding but it's really really important no, um, the colleague that i'm working with tom sherrington he does work in in a number of fe colleges but his ongoing work with oldham college yeah uh, anyway observing colleges and schools he says the number one technique critical to student success that teachers think they do think they do well and think they do often enough is the one that he says on the whole they don't do well enough they don't do it frequently enough, and that is check for understanding yeah check for understanding because just because you say stuff just because you show stuff just because the keen ones put their hands up that almost has nothing to do whether Joe in the corner or absolutely gets yeah. it. So the trick then is 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 having activities and discussions that people feel um, safe enough to be able to voice what they think they know. No, I would totally agree. I mean, from my previous experience, an often overused strategy to check understanding is questioning to the whole class when you're getting information from one or two learners. So again, it's, it's really difficult to do. But but as a teacher and as a lecturer, it's about constantly checking understanding of all learners yeah. and making sure that they understand that to allow you to move on and do it. I totally agree with that. And that's fundamental to kind of all aspects of teaching practice. Yeah, yeah. So no, that's great. So come back to dual coding and Ollie. So we'll talk around, a bit around what it is. We'll talk really quite a lot around why. Mm. How should it be done? That, that, that's a key, but I think everyone wants to know is how do we do this in practice? And it's not easy. Or is it? Well, invariably we now move into see, see all the books i've read about dual coding yep. it's interesting and in fact 
and I've read some, you know, I'm reading Mayer's 900 page tome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've read loads of such similar books. Yeah. Just because you measure it as a psychologist, it doesn't mean you're any good at it. Right. So, and of course it's, and I was really disappointed by that. But, but again, that was really silly on my part. It's like expecting a sports journalist to be any good at sports. Yeah, absolutely. Just because yeah. it's a talk about it, enjoy it, it doesn't mean any good at it. Absolutely, yeah, that's a good point. So then analogy. We go into the executing it is about yeah. you or you you start getting involved whether you want to or not with the principles of graphic design. Okay. Yeah. Now my background is that my father was an architect, and I don't know whether you know architects. He was an architect, typographer, graphic designer. So I kind of immersed in it, and um, and I've been working with teachers, you know, for over forty years. Yeah. And my wife's a teacher, so I know what the teachers' mistakes that teachers make when they start incorporating visuals, um, and they are really quite common mistakes, and they're natural mistakes if you know nothing about it. So if you get someone who's very enthusiastic. So, oh, yeah, your code is here. I really need to, to pep up my staff. And equally, they know nothing about graphic design. Yeah. You'll get familiar and consistent mistakes. So when I started becoming um, more active on Twitter um, and I've had some of my, my work out and I display on Twitter, I had loads of teachers saying, Oliver, can you give me some advice? Yeah. Um, I've, you know, and I've got a library full of books. I've even got a book. I mean, it's very good. It's called Design for Non-Designers by Robin Williams. It's about 20 odd years old. Even that, I would hesitate to give it to a teacher who isn't going to really get into it. Oh, I know. Here's a here's a teacher. I've got so much spare time from my teaching and my family. I think I'll devote 10 hours to reading all these books. Mm. You know, it's not going to. And then another few hours experimenting. It's not going to happen. So in the end, I was forced to, and I really enjoy the challenge, what four principles can you use to make sure it really works? And these four principles, although I'm informed by all the books, it's applied to what I see with teachers do. Yeah. So four, four simple principles. The first one's the easiest to understand and the easiest to execute and has the biggest effect. And it's one word, it's called cut. Okay. cut. So generally what you see is far too much content on a slide yeah. on a page on a board cut so when we say cut obviously reduce the volume of content yes is that what you're saying there and yeah. should we be including images where appropriate yeah yeah don't use images all the time excellent point two What's the next there? one is chunk chunk yeah this is there's this seemingly complicated thing called gestalt psychology and what it means is i mean they all show up how clever human beings are we naturally if you put things together you think they belong so for example uh listeners can't see but i'm seeing a picture of you and a photo and behind you are some football shirts that those famous black and white vertical stripes and what you've done is you've exhibited chunking You've put them close together. They're not distributed across the whole wall or different walls. So by putting them close together, you've created an entity, a thing, a group. You know, and we yeah. learn grouping when we're in infant school. You know, we have the nature table and we group blue things and yellow things and we group things. I mean, I taught in a special school, severe learning difficulties. And even the youngest at the age of 
three, we had a big Velcro board that they could reach, <laughs> you know, and they grouped items that belong in the house, items that belong outside the house. Yeah. So, and it's the major intellectual um, thing that we do. We group things. So when you display things on a, on a say, some, a worksheet or a bit of text, physically group them together. Make sure there's enough paragraphs with a big space between the paragraphs and make sure every paragraph, so we're getting into writing now, has got a title. And make sure the title is meaningful. So, for example, the first title of the first paragraph, you could waste the opportunity and call it introduction. Yeah. But, man, everyone knows the first thing is the introduction, so it doesn't help. So look at what you've written that first paragraph and, and write a title, which is pithy, short, that really signals what it's about. So it might be... Um, Setting up a podcast, I'd have that. Then before I've read any of the paragraph, I know what it's about. Yeah. So it kind of it connects to what I already know or little bits I know. It attunes me. It it, it, it sets me up. And it's funny because this all sounds, I'm going to say, too obvious and too simple. But from my experience of seeing many, many, many lecturers teach a session, you're absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of, I'm going to say, disinformation that's possibly irrelevant. And I, would it be fair to say that this then at times contributes to um the cognitive load theory we've talked about earlier on you know a lot of disinformation irrelevant information which can put learners off the theme of what they're wanting to learn or needing to learn is that fair to say absolutely and the wrong order so i have this theory that in education we have to write essays yeah okay and i think they corrupt the mind okay. so essays are fine for the world of academia and you get on you have to write bigger and longer essays and reports and and everything and research papers but is absolutely 100% the wrong way to communicate. So what it does is it does a load of palaver, introduction, methodology, blah, 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 and then gumph and gumph and gumph and gumph and gumph and detail and more detail. And if you've got this stamina at the end, you get you get the punchline. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I can understand your view on that. And here's the equivalent. Right, Johnny, we can do a jigsaw puzzle. Here's yeah. a piece. Here's a piece. I'm not showing you the cover, by the way. Okay. Here's a piece. Here's a piece. Here's a piece. And then if you're a really good boy and you pay attention for a very long time, you'll be rewarded at the end. You'll go, aha, so it was a picture of Big Ben. Whereas I go, Johnny, look, it's a picture. It's about Big Ben. Have you got it? Right, okay. So now... Which bits might be the clock? Which bits by, might be the tower? Which is a double-decker bus? So you know? chunk those yeah. bits together so to kind of build up those pieces. Give it away. Give it away. So, let, so newspapers are brilliant. Newspapers yeah. and magazine give you examples all the time. So I'm just going to give you um, – you're kind of going off to your Cody, but you have to get this right. It's um, in the 1980s. I'm old. I remember the 1980s. Britain was at war with Argentina over the Falklands. Um, and there was some issue about the Bel the Belgrano was one of the um, the the warships that the Argentinians had. And on the sun, forget the politics, they had a one word title which gave the whole story away. And it was yeah. in great big bold, gotcha. Gotcha. Then they had a little subtitle, something about sinking the Belgrano. Yeah. And then the article. 
So by the time you reach the article, you've got a wonderful title and this little sentence called a stand first that kind of really sets you up. So and I guess come back to those principles that you've shared so far in terms of cut. They've cut out the irrelevant content. Yeah. They've chunked it all together. Yeah. Chunking no. signals meaning. Yeah, yeah. That signals. makes sense. And the third one is a line. A line. So I've never been able to stare directly into a teacher's head, but all those hundreds, thousands that I've met, I think I've got a formula. So don't forget, they're very enthusiastic. Yeah but they don't know anything about graphic design. So if you think of that as this plus this equals, which is like a formula, so their mind goes, so I need to make it exciting. I need to make it interesting. I need to engage them. So they think, so it needs to be not dull. So I know I'll, I'll make it really kind of jazzy. And what they mean by jazzy and engaging is they put, they put the items on a page or slide all over the place. Yeah as if you were doing a painting, you know? So when you're drawing a landscape, you don't draw all the trees in a nice neat line because they're not like that. You don't draw all the flowers in, a, in, a, in the wild like that. Whereas actually, rather than having Matisse your painter as your, as your model, I would say, I'm gonna exaggerate now, mm -hmm. a railway timetable. Or if you buy a Sunday paper and they give you, um, the, the following week's TV programs. Right? Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all consistent look and feel. I mean, yeah. considering how much they cram in. So don't try and cram in as much as they do. Yeah. But given they do cram a lot in, if we as teachers had to do that, it would be a complete mess. But they know how to organise things. So, for example, when you use text, apart from titles, never use centred text. It's the hardest to read yeah. because the eye goes left and it's always a different starting position. Yeah. So when you use left aligned text, it's called left aligned, then you don't even need to have a, a black line by the side. The, the contrast of the, of the very neat text with the blank white is really neat and it helps your eye go to the right place. And again, this, come back to what I said about kind of points one too, this reduces the cognitive overload which straight away can be a barrier to stop learners from being able to engage with, with, with the volume of content. So I think it's a really interesting luckily point. With, so luckily with um, the work that's been going on with instructional de designers online, you know, they really get to know you because they look at your eyes, they yeah. follow your eyes and they know what's distracting, what it isn't. They also talk about the emotional immediate response you get to a screen, a slide or, what, or whatever. And, and I'm going to exaggerate, but the two opposites are, and you'll recognize it in yourself, it's either, ugh, mm -hmm. you know, like deflated, yep. oh, God, here goes, or it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, it's nice, it's fresh, it's clean, I can, I can handle this, it's not too much, it's clear, yeah. crystal clear. And it comes back to the core principles of, you know, of, of teaching fundamentally. You know, you don't want to provide, on, for example, on a PowerPoint slide, all of the content that learners need to know because they switch off, they write it down, they disengage, or yeah. might be too much information. You want to hook them in, you want to draw them in, and by doing this, it's, it's keeping it clean and fresh and, and appealing, but yeah. also, as you said there, in terms of reducing the volume of content and the volume of images and the volume of information, it allows some hooks to retain that information. Yeah. Excellent. So let me tell you a bit of a tip about it. Yeah. The biggest secret in the graphic organizer industry is this.
every poster, every TV screen, every slide, everything you ever see, every every billboard, at the designer's computer, they've got something called a grid. So on their screen, they'll have, um, say if I was designing a PowerPoint slide, yeah. to start, I would use the wide, extra wide, because that's the shape of, of screens now. I might have 15 vertical equally spaced guides, and yeah. I might have 10, if I do have, I do have 15 vertical, vertical uh, columns, um, and I'd have, say, 10 rows. So it's, it's a grid. And then I align all my text and my images, so it's really aligned. And when it's done, I take the grid off, yeah. and you as a viewer consciously don't recognize anything, but it has an impact on you. You go, this is really well organized for me. I can navigate it. It's, it's, it's digestible. I can know where I, I go. So any newspaper, any magazine you buy, if it was designed the way teachers do without any background knowledge, it will be unreadable. Just be unreadable. Yeah. Um, so now go and look at newspapers and magazine and look how it's all really well aligned. Very neat. And you can do that on PowerPoint because they now have guidelines and you can create all your grids. Yeah. And I think the technology that, that people use compared to three or four years ago you know, has caught up with large elements of this and there's a lot more design ideas and guides. But yeah, I think come back to these three principles, we'll go come to fourth in a second. I guess our, our standard rules of thumb that our lecturers can kind of pick up and start using within their practice if they aren't already. And, yeah. and then that leads on to the fourth one. So what's the fourth one? I'm kind of curious here. Restrain yourself. <laughs> restrain yourself. So that means restrain your colour palette. I mean, generally, I only use one colour when I'm working, sometimes two. So the idea, oh, I'll engage them, and then rainbow colours come out. or you know. <laughs> so in psychology, and I'll talk about images very shortly, yeah. um, you want fewer of everything, less and fewer. Um, just recently, I just, I'd known about him. There's a typographer, Eric Spikerman, who's done a really nice one-minute video. He's, he's a legendary figure. I mean, recently, a few years ago, he redesigned The Economist. Um, it's just that little bit of cleaner in all the ways. Yeah. And you know, they had tens of thousands more subscribers, even though they didn't notice the, the difference and they didn't know who Eric Spiken was and, you know, they didn't know what typography was. It has that effect. No, it absolutely does. Because I've noticed, obviously, a lot of your work from afar on, on, on Twitter and social media over the last couple of years. And it does just look a lot cleaner, a lot crisper, looks a lot more engaging. And that's yeah. without, you know, that's just that perception before you even then getting into the learning side of things. You know, so it's that sort of thing that's really important for students there as well. And I can imagine that across the papers and the economists there as you've identified. Yeah. Now, I've got another thing which is in the back of my mind as well. Um, and I don't know if there's any research on this. It's just my gut feeling is that. When you buy, I mean, I know you're, I'm quite obsessed by magazines. The, the richer the magazine, the more expensive it is. Like, mm -hmm. The more it's, it's addressing the richer clientele, the simpler the designs are. Yeah, I they agree with afford, that. They can afford the paper. Now, the thing is, space doesn't cost any money on the screen. <laughs> doesn't cost you any money. Yeah. And having it pared down and simple and well-ordered gives you a feeling this is rich. And this is for sophisticated adults 
Whereas when you jazz it up with every typeface, I'll go into typeface and color and pattern and everything else, it's like, and particularly in thinking in terms of FE and your students, it's a bit like early learning center. Yeah. It's childish. It's childish. You're treating them as if they're five and you need to go, woo, you know, all jazz hand stuff. Actually, you know, it's it's hipper, it's cooler. That's why the big companies all employ graphic designers. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. No, I think you're yeah, that's a really interesting point there, because again, thinking back to work I've done as a new teacher, you, you go and spend hours looking for the right um PowerPoint template and, and, and bubbles in the background and this, that and the other are actually that's more detrimental. It, it's it's better and more effective to be more clean cut. It might be a an age thing, you know. As you get older, as you spend a bit more time, you step away from that. But you're absolutely right in terms of it's not about entertaining. It's not about making it look um, exciting. It's about being really effective. But you, you can have those other factors whilst making your your visuals clear and like that. You use the word exciting. I would say this. It's a general rule. I don't think I've ever seen this contradicted. For teachers without any graphic background, knowledge, skills, the more you want to entertain and, and make it exciting, the more you want to do that is a direct relationship, the worse the result will be. So the very effort to do all that yeah. makes your result worse. No, so, that's interesting. And I think, obviously, we've talked very briefly. I know you've got to kind of add some more points there around kind of typeface and so on and so forth. But I think... For any listeners here who are really interested and engaged by this, I'm going to kind of say, look, there's, there's three key things you need to do. Firstly is is have a look at some of your work on Twitter. You know, your, your kind of your Twitter handle, you know, it feels strange saying that term handle, is Ollie Cav, O-L-I-C-A-V. The second one is, is grab your book. You know, your book is really interesting. It brings these four key terms and much more to life in terms of it gives lots of examples. It gives lots of hints and tips and methods of how you can do this in practice. And then the third one is really come back to these four key points and keep things really simple and just kind of live by those in terms of cut, chunk, align and restrain yourself and try things. And again, it's like anything, and I'm sure you agree with this, you're never going to master this all nice. You're never going to master it probably forever, but you can you can tweak and continue to tweak and, and see what's effective. And again, I'm keeping all your thoughts on this, Ollie, but especially now in the world where we're flipped online, I think it's even more important to be articulate, to be clear, to be concise in the content that we are sharing with our learners, because the the typical opportunities that we have to converse, to support that learning have been reduced a little bit more. So it's even more important to be more explicit and articulate in the images and in the content that we're providing. So I'm not sure about your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I do. I do. So I need to say something immodestly yeah um, over the last two two and a half years teachers have been going on my website they've read the book and they have got cut chunk a line and restraint at the forefront of their minds and despite me trying to encourage teachers for the last 30 35 years yeah. in the last two i've seen an utter revolution absolutely utter revolution remarkable work by teachers people who with no graphic design background producing um crystal clear exciting because it's simplified not exciting as in woo you know over overfill it's complying with dual coding and with cognitive load theories but you don't need to know any of that it just looks like 
wow, here's a real professional. They've really, you know, they've handed it over to a design team and they've produced all my slides. That's what it looks like. Um, yeah. And the thing is, what teachers find, first of all, you might think, oh, I haven't got enough time to, to, to do that. I'm going to characterize, but from what I've heard of teachers, here's what's going They do a PowerPoint slide and just as you, just as you say, they go, oh, they have to design the slide. Every single slide is designed in a sense of, oh, should I put it left or right? What colors, what patterns? Oh, let me go and search for typeface. And they do that for every damn slide. It takes an enormous amount of time. You spend some time using the grid lines, as I say, designing, say, two or three slides that are you, your color palette really reduced, two typefaces. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Two typefaces and job done. Yeah. Job done. So yeah. what grid allows you to do is all aligned, but infinite variety. As long as it's aligned, it's still grid based. And then there, almost no thinking. And that's and this just becomes a habit and routine. And yeah. it's like, you know, when, when you're kind of saying about kind of creating PowerPoint, it's just because teachers want to try and make it as engaged as they can do. They spend a lot of time on it. They want to make it more engaging for students. And it's actually just you know, go through this process of training and, and, and reflecting. And again, like I said, just even have a look at your, your, your Twitter site, your Twitter page and all the retweets and, and aspects that you've shared from other colleagues. You know, it just looks very clean and clear cut. And like I said, it looks like a, a bit of information that you'd want to pick up. And if it does that to us, and, and it'll do that for the large majority of our students there as well. You know, so it's really, really interesting. And you're absolutely right. It's around, I think, if we realise or if we perceive that this is important, we make time for it. Say anything in life. If this is important, and you can see what time this has significant benefits for your learners in, in terms of their aiding their retention of information, recall of information, then absolutely it's just another tool in our locker to try and support and, and aid learning from our learners. Yeah. So typeface. Go on, typeface. I'm, I'm curious a bit about this as well. Well, face, you know, there are two types of typeface. Because French is my first language, I'll say it in the way I found natural, and they will say I'll anglicize it. So serif and sans serif. Serif right, okay. and sans serif. What it means is sans serif is blocks. It's like right angled on the edges. Right, Sometimes okay. it's rounded, but generally. The uh, the serif is the, the old like Times Roman, the bits that stick out on the end, the, the little yeah. curvy pointed bits, which were designed so when they cut letters into stone, they didn't crack. That's interesting because, I mean, having worked in education for 14 years, I've never known that. To be fair, I've never had the appetite to to yeah. look at the difference between sans serif and serif. So that's interesting to know. So and what does that mean then for us? Generally, when you're doing, um, when you're designing for screen, it's better to use sans serif, the blocky one, because although screens, you know, Apple Retina screens are, are much better than they used to be, yeah. the resolution isn't as good as printed on paper. So, so you don't have to exclude those. So they'll be fine for um, a, a big title. Yeah. But generally for the body text, you would use the other. And when people say, which one shall I use? Well, you know, as long as you don't use Comic Sans, you know, Comic Sans, uh, babyish, difficult to read, ugly, um, you know. So any of the typefaces that all the systems have, you know, Google typeface, yeah. being designed for the screen and when they design these letters they design them huge and they're little minor tiny things that you're not aware of 
but has been tested to make a difference to ease and speed of reading. Right, okay. So that's the purpose of going to co- being contracted to take this because it, it aids a learner, it aids a speed of reading, and it, and it kind of removes any potential barriers there as well or, yeah. or reduces. Interesting. Now that, and obviously, you're saying about kind of not advising A1 to use. What are the types of typefaces that you do use? I've got no doubt some listeners will want to kind of know that. What the typefaces you use in your, your books or your material? Well, I use a typeface that I pay for. Right. Yeah. And that's part of my branding. Yeah. So no one else uses it. So it stands out as branding. So that's, I mean, I'll tell you what it is. It's Clavica, but, you know, you don't want to spend 200 quid on it, you know? No, absolutely not. And again, I know, I think you've um, identified some before that are free and available. Um, I, I might have made that up, have I? Or have you shared those as part of your... You really don't need a list. You just need to go and um, you could Google it or just, you know, you'd have Arial. If you've got Helvetica, the original, use that. You know, the Swiss Helvetica. You can't get classier than that. No, that's great. That sounds really interesting. Calibri is designed for the screen. Yeah. Um, No, that that sounds really interesting. And it's, yeah, we could talk quite a lot there around different aspects and, and how they all, I guess, all draw together because... Yeah, obviously initially we'll talk on dual coding around how we're using visual with written or, or, or verbal, you know, to, to aid that retention of information. But all these other principles absolutely feed in there and draw in and, and hopefully reduce the cognitive load and uh, allow for greater learning. And I know we're kind of going to touch upon towards the end some of the current work you're doing with Tom Sherrington around the, the walkthroughs. So I'm, I'm keen to hear a bit more about that, Ali. Yeah, well, um, Tom's known all around the world uh, and he and I collaborated together and tried to, well, we did, we applied all these principles. So here are the problems we faced uh, with learning, with the teachers learning techniques, <coughs> they read books yeah. and they're all narratives and good stories and theories, but actually they don't tell you, it's boom, boom, boom. Teaching's practical, teaching's physical, you do stuff. Yeah. If you don't do stuff, you're not teaching. So, um, we just need to make it really, really clear. And we need to break it down. So bearing in mind cognitive load, every technique is broken down into five steps. The last thing you want to do is pick up a nine-step process, find yourself in a classroom thinking you've learned it, and all of a sudden you go, oh, what comes next? So five, you can remember five steps. So Tom is a brilliant writer, really crisp. So yep. there'll be wonderful examples of how to do that. And I illustrate every step. So it's memorable. The words and the images, they're engaging, they draw you in, they're memorable. And so it alters this other thing that we have. Dylan William talks about lethal mutation. Listen, we've all done this. You go to a course, someone up front goes, whoa, all exciting, inspiring. You go, yeah, and you, you're convinced you've understood what he said. And you go, I'll, I'll do that in my classroom on Monday. And then Monday comes, and then you go, yeah, but he's not a real teacher. He doesn't know my my kids. So then you tweak it. And then, say, a week later, uh, you meet someone at coffee, and they say, oh, did you do anything with that course? Oh, yeah, it's great. I do this I do this technique. And then Jenny listens to me, and she goes, yeah, but Ollie's not, Ollie's not a very good teacher, so I'll just tweak that bit. And after four such word yeah. of mouth, you've lost all the main bits. So here, it's really, it's memorable, it's simple, and everyone knows what we're talking about. So you get um, a culture where the language is the same, the understanding is the same. Of course, one thing we did build in is that there is no one answer. But we have to have this basis that 
we talk about. And then the really important thing is we got a, every, every technique we advise you, you adapt it. So in other words, you try it, you try it out, you tweak it so it suits your subject, your students. So that way it's individualized, but everyone has got this common notion of what it is. No, I think that's really interesting. And again, just drawn back to those fundamental principles there of, you know, you're applying the principles that we've talked about for the last 40 minutes within that book in yeah. terms of how, for the reader, but also in terms of how we do that in practice. You're absolutely right. You know, a, an approach or a principle won't work in the same way for everybody. It's about readers taking that ownership and autonomy, applying it in their own world and kind of making it fit for them whilst drawn back to the fundamental principles of, of whatever they're trying to do. Yeah, you want to avoid, oh, we're all different, and then everyone's inventing things. That's really Correct. inefficient. And, of course, even if you invent something great, it all disappears. Yeah. So you want something stable around which innovation can happen, but we can all have conversation. So in college, you can have someone who's doing horse husbandry, you can talk to someone who's doing A-level law. They're using the same techniques, but they're, they're applied differently. So then you can great conversations. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and again, that, that's a big bit of work I'm trying doing currently across the Scottish sectors around just providing spaces for people to collaborate, both within subjects, but also outside of subjects, because for that reason, you know, it's about kind of sharing the learning with each other. And teaching is teaching how we have to apply in different ways with different learners and different groups of learners, but it's the same fundamental principles and how we apply that. So the second book, Ollie, I'm writing, I think, is out towards the end of March in terms of teacher walkthroughs too. Yes, is it is, right? yeah. If you go to um, a website, walkthroughs, that's my teacher mother would have slapped my wrist through <laughs> T-H-R-U, Americanized, sorry, walkthroughs.co.uk, yeah. you'll see that in addition to the book, we have um, some materials that, that you can buy. So you could lead all your training. You've got all the PowerPoint slides that go with it, designed in the way I talked about, and you've got trainer notes. So you can lead it at whatever departmental level or whole school or whole college. Um, and they've got workbooks and sheets for, for, for staff. So that would that would pretty much do all your CPD needs. So do no. look. Well, that sounds fantastic. That sounds fantastic. Well, Ollie, it's been a, a really interesting 45 minutes. You know, try and keep this podcast to 30 minutes. There's absolutely no way we could have condensed that into 30 minutes. Some really interesting points there. And like I said, I just implore any listeners to kind of have a look at, um, as I said before, in terms of your, your Twitter handle, just to really understand the visual side that we are talking about. That's the one bad thing with a podcast is you can't get any visual examples. But, <laughs> I, but but the visuals that are being produced, like I say, by yourself and by colleagues in the sector, they're really, really clear and concise. And it kind of brings to life all the principles we've talked about here. But also take a look at those books, also the Joel Coden book, but also the walkthroughs book as well, because, yeah, I think we're all consistently learning and looking to develop our practice and here's some fantastic resources that will allow us to do that as well so ollie okay, thank you very just much thing, just Sorry. one thing if you don't want to invest a lot of money then the walkthrough book is actually on kindle it's on uh, it's on an ibook as well but yeah. the kindle's just three pounds so and that's got nothing over 50 techniques for three quid and that's cheaper than a cost of coffee isn't it you know we're talking about improving our practice improving practice of colleagues you know it's cheaper than a cost of coffee so it, it, it's absolutely the way to go well, Ollie, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You know, and, and on behalf of listeners, thank you for coming along and kind of sharing your ideas today. Cheers. Thanks, Johnny.